so we started this brand new journey together on the Ten Commandments. And, you know, I never had preached on the Ten Commandments before, and um, I'm look, actually looking forward to it. And, and so we're going to start this journey today, and we're going to start with the first commandment. We're going to walk through this time together through summer, and I just think there's such great... Um, matter of fact, the, the, the Ten Commandments are actually not known... And the ancient tradition of the Jewish faith is really, they're not called the Ten Commandments, they're actually called the Ten Words. And the reason why they're called the Ten Words is because, uh, and we'll, once again, we'll, we'll break all this down in the scripture lesson, but Jesus, or God actually spoke the words from Mount Sinai uh, before he wrote them down and he gave them to, uh, to Moses. And so uh, we start this this journey on actually on Mount Sinai, and I was um, actually a, a couple of my friends that were texting me last night. My friend Bob had actually climbed Mount Sinai. Matter of fact, I got a picture of Bob. Actually, this is on top of Mount Sinai. Actually, he didn't know I was going to put this up, but that's a picture of my friend Bob who's sitting on the front. And he said it was actually one of the greatest thrills of his life to actually climb Mount Sinai. I joked up with him. I said, you know, you did that at seventy, at eighty. You know what? Maybe you need to try that again. He said, no way, Jose. I'm not going to do that. So. Um, which, you know, I would love to actually put that on my bucket list, to actually climb Mount Sinai. I think that would be great. Not, and, I, you know, I was thinking about that on my, my run this morning. There is a difference between, you know, many people are on this, this quest to climb mountains, right? And so when I was running this morning, I was thinking about, you know, the two, probably two most famous mountains in history or all in the world is probably Mount Everest because it's the tallest mountain and many people are on this quest to be able to, well, actually, uh, to, to actually get to the top of the mountain, to be able to be on, to be able to stand on the highest point on, on, on the earth. And then the, uh, and, and of course, the other mountain would be Mount Sinai. And, but the difference between the two is people, some people get caught up in this obsession of climbing to, to get to the top. And they put that on their bucket list. And many people try and many people fail and many people die because of their obsession. And the difference between the Mount, well, Mount Everest and Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai is, well, it's not the highest mountain on the planet Earth, but it is considered one of the holiest because this is where Moses received the Ten Commandments. It's a very holy mountain. And I started thinking, once again, when I was thinking on my run this morning about this, this obsession with um, getting to the top of Mount Everest, um, I, I wrote down actually five little questions because it really leads into the scripture lesson today because the scripture lesson, the first big commandment or the first word that we get from God in the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words is, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And I, I really believe that some people can take some things and aspects of life and make them a god. So for some people, they have made this quest to get to the top of Mount Everest their god because it's the most important thing. So these five little questions, I call these kind of the five heart check or gut, uh, gut check questions about the first commandment. The first commandment is to have no other gods before us, before God. Uh, what claims our highest allegiance? Question number one. Number two, what are we most devoted to? Number three, what has the greatest influence on our lives? Number four, what do you love more than anything else? Number five, what is the greatest source of your security? These are all very good questions. As we think about, you know, what is 
you know, the idea of what's really most important in our lives and this, this first of the 10 words, the first of the 10 commandments. So I, I want you to envision because um, on chapter, this, uh, the 10 commandments actually come in the book of Exodus, the 20th chapter. So before you get to 20, um, God calls Moses to uh, Mount Sinai and the children of Israel has taken three months to get there as he le- has led them out of bondage. So they're standing on the mountain. As a matter of fact, I think I got a picture of Mount Sinai. Can you put this up with you? So here's a picture of Mount Sinai. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a big mountain. It's an amazing mountain. I, I, you know, once again, I'd love to climb that mountain. But can you imagine all these thousands and thousands of people down at base camp at the t- bottom of that mountain? And so there's a cloud, according to the book of Exodus, the 19th chapter, that comes and hovers over the mountain. And, and, and so uh, God tells Moses and Aaron to go up to the, actually to the, up to the top of the mountain. And, and then he has this conversation. He says, and, they, and this is a place in which we find the book of Exodus, 19th chapter, that actually God consecrates the children of Israel. And then out of that consecration of blessing the people, we find these words from the Ten Commandments. And here's the first one. By the way, they're not just the Ten Commandments, they're Ten Words. Then God spoke, do you get that? Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So um, I was thinking uh, once again this week, you know, the title of my sermon today is uh, God Doesn't Want to Play Second Fiddle. And I, I actually looked up, because, you know, I like to look up stuff. I love history. And so I, I found this, this interesting quote that goes back to 1801. And uh, the reason why and, uh, it was found in, a, uh, in the um, uh, British newspaper. For the first time, the, the phrase second fiddle was ever used. And evidently, in the context, was there was two opera singers who gave this performance and then two other who were considered the elite of all the opera singers in this particular area. And so then they had these two rookies that had come in who were also opera singers and they actually outstaged the two superior elite um, opera singers. And so there was this tagline in there about how the two who were supposed to be the best of the best opera singers were outstaged. And they talked about them taking a bath. And in other words, they were actually, you know, the idea that they were placed in the second, in the second fiddle position and he called them out and he said, listen, they have actually placed themselves in the second, being second fiddle. I never had, you know, I thought that was interesting. And so, you know, when it comes to life, none of us want to play second fiddle. And God certainly doesn't want to play second fiddle. I was watching a documentary the other day. It was on 30 for 30 because I love sports and I was watching ESPN and I thought it was actually a very interesting, actually kind of a heart-wrenching story. Um, once upon a time, there was a, uh, actually a very good f- football player. His, his name was Drew Bledsoe. He played for the New England Patriots. And um, he was a superstar. He was, uh, Bill Belichick had him playing. He was their star quarterback. He had him moving in a really good direction. This is back in the 1990s. And all of a sudden he got hurt one day. Matter of fact, he actually started bleeding eternally, almost eternally, and he started almost, actually almost died. So then he went to the hospital. They put him back together again. And about, I don't know, maybe a month or two later, he actually had come back and wanted to, once again, he was a starting quarterback. Well, at that time, they had the second string quarterback, and you might remind, well, you might recall his name. His name is Tom Brady. And Tom Brady had told one of his, one of his teammates, he said, when Bledsoe went out, he says, he ain't getting his job back. 
And six Super Bowl later, he is true. He never got his job back. And in the documentary, they were talking about him ultimately having to play Drew Bledsoe. For the rest of his career, he had to play second fiddle. And it was actually very heart-wrenching to be able to watch. And it actually was fairly painful for him to be able to talk about how he was this elite and had worked his whole life to get to this pinnacle success. He was finally in this position. He was this superstar quarterback. He was injured and he never got his job back ever again. Playing second fiddle. Nobody likes playing second fiddle. And so in the text today, we find in the first of the commandments, or as the Jewish people call them, the ancient words, we find that God does not want to play second fiddle. He says, these shall not have any other gods before me. And so what we find in the commandments, I, um, matter of fact, I've got a kind of visual aid up here. And uh, the part of my sermon series is, you know, the 10 commandments are more than a relic. They really are words of life. Matter of fact, um, a person in our church donated this Bible. I love this Bible. It's beautiful. And, you know, it really is a relic. I mean, it's, it was actually it's dated 1881. It's a family heirloom that she had donated to our church. It's a beautiful Bible. Um, you know, it's not something you can put in your pocket. Um, it weighs probably about 15 pounds. But you know what? It is a relic. But the words inside this Bible are so much more than just a relic. What God wants us to understand is that from the Ten Commandments, they are ultimately all ten of the commands or all ten of the words are ultimately all point us to a deeper meaning and a relationship with God. They're words of life. They're words of meaning. They're words of hope. They're words of direction if we follow them. Um, I'm watching, you know, I love the History Channel. I watched this show called um, The Curse of Oak Island. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Matter of fact, I've got a picture of uh, Rick and Marty Lagina. Uh, they um, actually, when they were little boys, they read um, in the Reader's Digest, this is back in the 1960s, um, an article about Oak Island. And so evidently, on Oak Island, um, they had been searching for lost treasure for almost 200 years. Matter of fact, Franklin Roosevelt, actually, when he was a young man, actually went to Oak Island. This is Oak Island is in Nova Scotia. It's in Canada. And, um, and so he was even looking for lost treasure. So they've been searching for treasure on this island. And, and so for the Laginas, they have spent millions and millions of dollars. And what they're really looking for, it really isn't just about more gold. They're, they're treasure hunters, but it's not just about the gold. It's not just about the silver. But what they're really looking for are ancient relics, not just any relics. I mean, they're looking for stuff like the Holy Grail relic. They're looking for the Ark of the Covenant relic. They are looking for, of course, if they find the Ark of the Covenant, guess what they're going to find inside it? They would find the Ten Commandments. And so they've been on this quest for almost, I don't know, for the last eight or nine years. I've been watching and following the show. It's actually a very interesting show. They haven't found them yet, but they've been continuing to look for these ancient relics. They're on this quest to be able to find them. And the reason why they actually, you know, one of the reasons why they think they actually, these things actually might exist on Oak Island, you may think, how in the world can the Holy Grail, or how in the world can the Ten Commandments, or how can the world, can the Ark of the Covenant end up on a small little island in Nova Scotia? Well, I'll tell you, it goes actually, they actually found, and here's a picture of the cross, one of the crosses they found. This is the picture of Rick Lagina holding a cross that was dates back, dates back to 13 or 14th century AD. It's about 700 years old, and that cross is connected with the Knights Templar. 
And the Knights Templar were actually connected with the holy relics. And they think that maybe, possibly maybe, in the midst of the um, Knights Templar actually trying to protect, that they, they had possession of the Ark of the Covenant, they had possession of the Ten Commandments, they had our, uh, uh, possession of the Holy Grail, that they actually would have actually put them on a ship and brought them from France and moved them all the way over to, the, to, uh, to North America and put them on this little island thinking that no one would ever find them. For the last 200 years, people have been looking not just for gold, not just for silver, but actually have been looking for these ancient relics. And you know what I love about this? One of the things I thought was interesting about the passion that they have this in this show is the show is not just about looking for gold. It's not just about passion for looking for silver, but it's this passion for looking for something that's so well, and it's it's they would be there would be no price tag for that. Isn't it amazing? But what really intrigued me is how passionate they are about finding them. And so, you know, when I think about in the midst of our lives today, I think that over and over again, that somehow in the midst of, you know, oh, really, you're just going to preach on the Ten Commandments? I mean, those are really old, Harold. Yeah, they are. Matter of fact, they go back to about 3,700 years ago, right? When God actually gave them to Moses. Are they really relevant to our lives? And the end, they're actually, they are. And that's the point. They are more than a relic, but they're words of life that sustain us. So I was thinking this week, once again, and um, let me just teach for a second. So the 10 commandments, um, there are, uh, the first four have everything to do with our relationship with God. And then the next six or this next commandments or words have everything to do with our relationship with each other. They have to do with our relationships with, with our friends, our neighbors. It has to do with our relationship with our family members. And so it has to do with relationships. And what I love about the Ten Commandments, and once again, if you look at the words of Jesus Christ, I think it's so powerful because, you know, Jesus teaches us that we're supposed to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And so when you find in the essence of the Ten Commandments, I, I found this connection this last week as I was putting this sermon together, you really have the essence of what Jesus is talking about, about loving God with everything that we have, but also loving our neighbor. And so what is the Ten Commandments really all about? It's about loving God with everything that we have, the first four, and loving our neighbor, the next six, loving each other. So the words of Jesus, once again, these, and we're going to talk about that in just a few minutes, but there are words that we find that we find in the Ten Commandments, but actually Jesus points us back to the Ten Commandments in his words as well. So let me just teach for a second um, about the Ten Commandments. So uh, I don't know if you realize this, but from about 579 B.C. to 70 A.D. 70 A.D. is when they actually, the Romans went in and pummeled uh, Jerusalem, um, uh, just leveling it. Um, but for about almost uh, 600 years, the Jews, Jewish people would go to the temple and guess what they would do? They would recite the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words over and over again. It was a part of the very fiber woven into the very essence of their life. And so when you think about this, they would go and they would go to the temple and they would say them, pray them and pray them over and over again for over 600 years, every single day. So the Ten Commandments are a really, really a big deal. And you know, his interesting thing, they would teach their children the Ten Commandments. Once again, why would they do that? Because they're words of life. They teach us about loving God, but also loving each other. By the way, if you've ever seen these signs out in front of maybe a church, you've said, you know what? They're not called the 10 suggestions, <laughs> right? They, they are the requirements for an, living an ethical life. 
And, and so, when you, so we have this part of the story where almost for 600 years, the children, and so Jesus would have known the Ten Commandments. As a Jewish boy growing up, his mother and father would have taught him the basics of, of learning these things. And so every child would have been brought up learning the Ten Commandments. And so, um, so here's how the whole story kind of unfolds. So uh, uh, from around, let's see, about uh, 1800 BC, um, there was a famine in the land of Cana um, where it flowed milk and honey. And so just like we learned like in the Joseph story. So, so the, the Jewish people migrated down to Egypt because they had food there, okay? And so in the midst of all this, um, the, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, and the Egyptians seemed to be getting along pretty well. And all of a sudden, there was a new sect of group of Hebrew people had come down, and they actually began to take over Egypt. And so they ruled for about 250 years, the Hebrew people in the land of Egypt. And then, um, then as the story and history unfolds, then all of a sudden, then the, um, the Egyptians actually began to take back their property, their land. And so for about 250 and more years, we find the story in the midst of those years of the story of Moses. Because see, what happens is, is that the Egyptians became very taskmasters of, and they made the Hebrew people actually make bricks, and they made the bricks to be able to build more and more of the buildings that the Egyptians wanted. And so they continued to hold them in impression, oppression. But was very interesting, but the Hebrew people continued to populate, even under oppression. Matter of fact, the Egyptians were somewhat threatened because they thought that the Hebrews, as they continued to populate, the more and more Hebrews out, were outnumbered the Egyptians. So they're afraid that they were actually going to take over again. So they became even more taskmasters. And so at this point, the Pharaoh made a decree and he started killing the boys, the Hebrew children. And so we find in the midst of that part of the story, you ready? The story of Moses. His mother, Jochebed, comes up with this clever idea because she doesn't want Moses to be killed with all the other children. So she puts him in this little basket. She floats him down the Nile because she knows exactly where Pharaoh's daughter is actually bathing. And so uh, lo and behold, uh, there's little baby Moses. Uh, the Pharaoh's daughter hears the baby cry and she, she goes and pulls uh, the basket out of the Nile River and she sees it's a baby. And she goes home and sees her dad and says, Dad, can we keep them? <laughs> and so Pharaoh says, well, I, I guess that we can keep them. And so for, listen, for the next 40 years, do you realize that Moses lived as a prince of Egypt? He, he was educated, uh, highly educated. He probably would have been in Luxor. He would have learned about science. He would have learned about math. He would have learned all this about religion. And so for 40 years, he lived actually in in Pharaoh's house as one of his own, the prince of Egypt. And all of a sudden, as you all know this from Sunday school, and here's the rest of the story, is that uh, all of a sudden, um, uh, Moses goes out one day and he sees how the taskmaster, the masters of the slaves, were treating the Hebrew people. Once again, would you know that Moses was a Hebrew? He's not an Egyptian. 
And so then um, he sees how one of them, the, one of the slaves was been beaten down by one of the t- uh, slave masters and he, Moses just can't stand it anymore and he goes and he actually rises up and he kills one of the, the, t- the slave masters of, uh, and he, um, he doesn't realize that somebody sees him and the next thing you know, what happens with Moses, he flees for his life and he heads out to the desert. And so he's a man on the run. So he goes from the prince of Egypt to becoming just a shepherd once again. For the next 40 years, he's just a shepherd, very unassuming. And all of a sudden, one day, once again, the, the, the story comes full circle, doesn't it? He's at, of all places, Mount Sinai. And he sees a burning bush. But the bush is really not burning, but it's blazed. So he goes to the burning bush, he has his attention, and, and all of a sudden he hears out of the burning bush, as we hear in the story of Exodus, he hears God speak to him. He says, Moses, take off your sandals. You're on holy ground. And then so God has this conversation with Moses. He says, Moses, I've heard the cries of the oppressed of all my people. I need for you to go and set my people free. And you know what Moses says? I love this as part of Moses. This is a great part of the story. He says, basically, Moses says, God, you got the wrong guy, Right? And haven't we all said that at some point in our lives? Haven't we all made some kind of excuses in our life when God asks us to do something, we really don't want to do it. We got the, I don't want us. Do you know how many times I've had that from my children? Dad, I really don't want to. Well, I don't really don't care what you want to. Do you want the keys to the car or not? Do what I ask, right? And we all had that kind of a case of, I don't want us. And so Moses has the, I don't want us. I I really don't want to do that. I mean, you know, you got the wrong guy. Can't you find somebody else? I'm, you know, I'm really, you know, I'm and my men over my head. I feel completely inadequate. Haven't we all felt a little inadequate when God's called us to do? I feel that every single Sunday when I come up here and preach every single Sunday, I'm telling you. I mean, the idea of having this opportunity, this awesome responsibility to preach the gospel every single week, I always feel inadequate. So, you know, what's interesting is that um, in the story, um, so Moses finally, finally concedes and, and says, you know, I, I, I can, I'm, I'm a stutterer. I can't, I don't think I can do this, but you know, if you really want me to do it, I will. So Moses goes back to Pharaoh and we know this part of the story and he had these the plagues and finally the last plague is we call Passover and he finally, Pharaoh really lents and he finally lets his people go. And Moses leads the children of Israel, guess where he ends up? Mount Sinai. Once again, the circle, the story comes full circle, right? So we are standing at the base camp of Mount Sinai. And so God, so Moses goes up to Mount Sinai and he has once again, this conversation with God. And once as I shared the beginning of the part of the story is that the, the children are con- the children of Israel are consecrated. He has this kind of blessing over them. And um, as this cloud comes in over the, t- the horizon, over the mountain, and then God speaks to the children of Israel and he gives them the 10 commandments. And the first of the 10 commandments is thou shalt not have any other gods before you, me. Now what's very interesting about this particular commandment is you have to understand the whole context of the story. I mean, there is like the story before the story. So here's the first commandment. Let me read it again. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, what's interesting about this part part of the command is that we traditionally, in the English tradition, we we go immediately to the first commandment. And as a matter of fact, if you look up the 10 commandments, you're going to find probably the first command is you shall have no other gods before me. That's the first command. Actually not. 
the first command actually is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. See, according to the children of Israel, the first actually command actually begins with the sentence before the, you have no other gods before me. And the reason why that's so important is the wording that God chooses to use there. Because the word there, well, it says, I am your Lord, which is a very important word. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. And, and do you realize that the children of Israel, the word Lord is a really big deal. The word Lord, if we read it in your Bible, if you ever see the word Lord in all capitalized letters, it literally means the word Yahweh. And the tradition, the Hebrew tradition, is that it's so sacred that they don't even say that word in the Jewish tradition, the word Yahweh. It's considered such a holy word that's connected to God that you can't even say it. It's so sacred. So whenever you see the word Lord in all capital in your Bible, it is connected with the word Yahweh. And what does Yahweh ultimately mean? It means this. Yahweh ultimately means that God is the true essence of life. That Yahweh or the Lord our God is truly the, the, um, has the beginning of the existence of life. And the idea that you and I even exist comes from, as a gift from God. Did you get that? So when I woke up this morning, I remind myself every single day, the first thought that comes to my mind, the first prayer, as I start with this. Dear God, thank you for giving me another day. Now, have you ever been close to death? Those words, that prayer, becomes so sacred every single day you wake up. And then when you lay your head on your pillow at night and you live, God has given you another day. You say, dear God, thank you so much for blessing me with another day of life that I had a chance to be able to, to be in ministry or to do something with my life or to love my children or tell my children that I love them or, or even, f- f- what, what do you call the Instagram with your grandchild, right? And so the, the word Lord or the word Yahweh, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. The word Yahweh means, literally means is that God is the one who is the author of life, but he's also the one who is the, the essence of life, but he's also the one who's he's breathed the existence to life. Do you get that? This is what it truly means. So the first of the 10 commandments reminds us that God, of God ultimately who he is. The whole idea of the existence of life all has come into being because of almighty God. And then the second part of that is that you have no other guys before me. So you can't look at the first, the second part, which is the second part, you shall have no other guys before me without actually according to Jewish tradition is you gotta look at the first part first because the first part has everything to do with the second part. So you know what, I, I love this part of the story because see, you have to go back to the story, the story before the story. So we find this part in the book of Exodus, the 20th chapter, where, G, where God says, you shall have no other gods before me, but you know, listen, I want you to realize, I am the Lord your God, I am Yahweh came out, who brought you out of Egypt. So Moses has this conversation with God at the burning bush, right? And this is, we find this in the, about the third chapter, I believe, in the book of Exodus, and so in the midst of that conversation, remember he says, um, well, you know, Lord, I really don't want to do this, but I guess I'll do it. And he says, but by the way, who am I supposed to say who has sent me? And then God says, you tell them I am 
who I am sent you. God says, tell them Yahweh, the Lord our God, the one who has given you existence in the first place. You tell them that who is who has sent you. So you see the original conversation that Moses has with God on Mount Sinai in the early chapters of the book of Exodus comes full circle that we find in the book actually here in the 20th chapter where God says to Moses, hey, listen, this is what I want you to understand. First of all, I want you to know I'm Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery. And here's the, well, once again, here's the first command or the first word. You shall have no other gods before. So we really truly believe that God really is a jealous God. He doesn't want to play second fiddle. He doesn't want to play sickle fiddle in any, anyone's life because he is the author of everlasting life. He is the author of the, exi- of the existence. He is the author of you and I waking up this morning and having the privilege to be able to stand here and sit here and be able to be a part of worship day. Can we amen on that? Amen. You know what I love about part of, this, part of this story is, I mean, out of all the people that God could have chosen, the chosen people, the Hebrew people, and he brings them out of bondage. And so isn't it so typical of God that God takes the powerless and the people who are oppressed and he brings them out of bondage and he, he brings hope into their lives. I mean, I, I, mean, I, I just, it just, it's kind of, it's, it's just kind of mind-boggling to think. I mean, he takes this ragamuffin group of slaves that have been in slavery for 250 years and he leads them out to lead them towards the promised land. Now, it's gonna take them a long time to finally get there, but he, God is gonna finally get there. And once again, we find this over and over again in the stories that we find, like, for example, how Abraham and Sarah, once again, they're just sheep herders. And God chooses Abraham to be ultimately to lead, well, to ultimately lead the beginning, the seed of life towards the Hebrew people. Here they're chosen people. They're gonna, and God establishes a covenant with Abraham. I'm gonna bless you and descendants as numerous as the stars in the heavens and the sand and the sea. And we find that part of the story. And then we find this, this story over and over again. Like, for example, David is just like, he's the run of the litter, right? I mean, he's the, he's the least of all of Jesse's tribe, but yet God changed, raises David up to become the greatest king the Hebrew people have ever known. And so we find this part of the story over and over again, how God chooses people. And isn't that what we find with even the, in Jesus's relationship with people, how Jesus would go to the oppressed and he would go to the people who were tired and weary and la- heavy laden. And he would go to the people who were the lepers. And he would go to the people who were, who were, uh, who were um, uh, the lame and the blind. And once again, Jesus was always attracted to the oppressed people in order to bring hope to their lives. So we find this part of the story, which is it's just fascinating to me, how once again, we, 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 we find in the midst of this, this transition that God ultimately gives these people hope and he gives them this command. He says, you shall not have any other gods before me because listen, I'm a jealous God. I'm gonna be number one in your life. I'm not gonna play second fiddle. And so what I think it's very powerful. And once again, we have to understand the context. This is, once again, this story goes back to around, um, around 37, 3,800 years ago, right? And so let me tell you, let me share this with you. Do you realize the, why would God, why would God make this the first commandment? Well, here's what I think, is do you realize that the Egyptians had literally thousands of gods? Not hundreds, but thousands of them. And so they, the children of Israel have been inundated with all these gods of the Egyptian people. They had gods for everything. 
And the main God was a God called, they called Ra, which is connected with the sun God. And so when, when God says, you shall have no other gods before me, for I am truly the existence of life. I'm the one who's given you life. I'm the, I'm the God of all gods. There are, there, I am the superior God. What God is saying to the children of Israel, you know, you have been caught up in all these little gods. Even Ra, who is connected with the sun, and the sun's connected with the existence of life. He says, I even trump that God. Do you get that? So no wonder when we get the 10 commandments or the 10 words right out of the gate, God says to the children of Israel, I am not gonna play second fiddle to all those other Egyptian gods that you know. There is only one true God, I, and I am the author and the existence of life. It all comes from me. And I ain't playing second fiddle. So, you know, what's interesting is that um, there, I, I find that, you know, the idea of, you know, maybe you have thought about this, and you know, oh, you know what, I really don't have a problem with this, this first commandment, you know, the idea of gods, you know, I, I, I've come to church today, I, you know, I totally get that, I, you know, I don't want to, you know, I don't think I worship any other gods, but you know what's interesting in life, in our society, there are lots of little gods out there, and don't kid yourself, I mean, you know, I, you know I, I, I love to run. And so it's, you know, I, I've been in that circle and I've, I've gone to lots and lots of races over my life. And I've seen people who actually have made physical fitness or be able to run for all these races. And they're on this quest to improve themselves. And I think that even that can become like a little God. Or, you know, in lies that we can become obsessed with certain things in our lives and become, we make these little things, these, well, God's. I thought it was very interesting is that, did you realize that um, in, in our society that the, the actual motto of the United States of America is in God we trust? Do you realize that? Matter of fact, do you realize once again that it is actually on the $20 bill? In God we trust? Do you realize that, you know, out of all the states in the union, all 50 states, do you realize in the state of Florida, do you know what our, our motto is? In God, we trust. State of Florida, it's the only one. In God, we trust. And so what's interesting about this is we, Jesus cautions us about certain things in our life. Matter of fact, back in the 1800s, there was a Baptist pastor who petitioned the treasury and said he was concerned about how people become so obsessed with money. He says, can you please put something in the currency to remind us that we're ultimately, we're all held accountable to Almighty God, not to the Almighty dollar. And so we find what I think was very interesting and very powerful when the words of Jesus, when he cautions us, when he prepares us and he thinks about, you know, Jesus' take on the first commandment. You find it in Matthew 16, the 26th chapter. Why would a, what would it profit a man to gain the whole world but he would lose his own soul? Jesus said that. When he gives us the parables of the parables of the seeds or the parables of the soil that we know them, Jesus says this. He says, he says in the parable that the good weed is being choked out by the weeds. As Jesus put it, the worries of this life and the false appeal of wealth choke out the word and it bears no fruit. Jesus. And, and so then, you know, it's interesting also, do you realize the first of the, the first 
temptation in the existence of life. We have the story of Adam and Eve. And so we know the story about Adam and Eve and the forbidden fruit and this, you know, the interesting thing about the temptation there, the temptation is not ultimately they fall to the temptation of eating the fruit. The temptation there is that they want to eat the fruit in order to become like God. So the first temptation, their first sin is associated with us trying to be like God or making ourselves God above God. And so what I think is very powerful when you look at the stories that so often in our lives we, we can get so caught up and as human beings making ourselves like, I, I don't know if you ever met anybody who's a little bit prideful, a little bit self-centered, a little sarcastic or narcissistic, but I love this acronym. It's called EGO. Anybody have an EGO? Edging God out. So you know what? I, I think, and here, let me just wrap this up for us today and we'll have communion with, we launched in this series. I really believe that the, the essence of the first command or the essence of the first word that we get from God is we're to live, because once again, it's not, these are not words that are relics. These are words that are meant to be able to inspire us to lead us a life that's holy and righteous. It's the reason why God gave them to us. So the idea that if, if my heart is so full of the love of God, and if, as Jesus teaches us, if my heart and our hearts are so full of loving not only God, but loving our neighbor, then that means there's no room for anything else but to love God. There is no, there is no other room for other idols in life because my heart is so full of loving God. Does that make sense to you? Does that help? So I think that the true essence of the first, the first command has everything to do with our heart. And these are words not to mean relics, but these are words to be living everyday life. So if I love God and I love my neighbor and my heart is so full with that, there are no, there's no other room for anything else but to continue to love God. My wife gave me a, a great quote and I'll never forget it and I'll continue to live my life by this until the day that I die, or, you know, um, and she said to me before we got married, and this is true, and I think it's actually, not only does it apply to a fidelity in our relationship and being truthful to God, because see, once again, God is a, he, he's a jealous God, but it, it's true to our essence of our relationships with our spouses, with our children, with our friends, and our relationship with God about being faithful. My wife said this, she says, you know, Harold, you put me first, I put you first, and nobody's second. And the same thing applies to our relationship with God. We continue to put God first and God puts us first and then no one is second. And God certainly doesn't want to play second fiddle. So I close with these words. Do you realize that, well, you know, Jesus is always willing to put God first. And there's no other truer place that we find these words when he is on the, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's about to be betrayed. He's about to be thrown under the bus. He's going to be crucified the next day. And then Jesus is agonizing on that night. And he says, Father, if there's any other way, can you please let this cup pass from me? And then there's a pause. And then Jesus says, no, it's not my will, but thy will be done. Do you see how in the words, the truth that we find in Jesus really is our pioneer and perfecter of faith. We follow him. That his love for 
God and his love for you and for me, his heart was so full of all that, there was no other place other than to continue to love God and love us. And that is the truth of the gospel of Christ. And that is the meaning of the first command. You shall have no other gods before me. I am the Lord, Yahweh, the existence of life that has brought you out of slavery in order to give you hope and meaning and love.